Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. I am Pastor Mark Gunger, the pastor here at Celebration Church. Glad that you've joined with us tonight. Now, on our Wednesday night Bible studies, what we do is take one book of the Bible and we go through it one verse at a time, one line after the other. Look at the whole thing in context, and it's a great way of really getting to understand the Bible. And let me encourage you on Wednesday nights, bring your Bible with you. Uh, Sunday mornings, we don't pick on you so much on that. But on Wednesday nights, you really ought to bring your Bibles with you because it'll give you a chance to uh, look at things in context. Where Not only where we're reading right now, but look back where we just were. Look ahead where we're going. It gives you a sense of the scriptures in context. Very, very important thing to do. All righty then. Um, so anyway, we are in Acts, the 23rd chapter. And what's happening now is a Paul has been arrested by the Jews. Remember, he said the Spirit was telling him to go to Jerusalem, which seems kind of odd because every place he went, the Spirit was prophesying that if he goes, he's going to get in big trouble, get arrested and stuff. Everybody tried to talk him out of it. He would not be persuaded, so he went ahead and went. When he got there, the first thing the Christians did, James and the apostles and everybody said, listen, really... You know, we got a lot of believers here, but they're really ticked at you because you're not following the, the, the old Jewish law. And, and uh, so you need to do some real Jewish things while you're in town. So they got him to take a vow and shave his head and go into the temple and do all the religious purifications that he needed to do as a Jew. And while he was doing that, quietly praying, someone recognized him that hated him for his stance as a Believer telling people that they could be saved without the Old Testament law and uh, just had a cow. And they started this big riot. And, uh, and then Paul got up and started to speak to the whole group. And uh, very fascinating, as, as he's reading, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about all these things. None of that got them, got them angry. I've told you this over and over again. It wasn't the fact that Jesus was as the Messiah is what the Jews had a problem with. That's what everybody says. You know, they, they couldn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. So that's why. No, that wasn't it. They had no problem with Jesus as the Messiah. Not by and large. And these people would write at the drop of a hat. The whole time he was talking about Jesus and stuff and Jesus speaking to him. They had no problem with it. It wasn't until he said, and then God sent me to the Gentiles. That's when they went psycho. Because what they hated was this idea that you could be saved without obeying all the legalisms of the Old Testament. They were so connected to the uh, to their religion, the, the part that, you know, the external part of their experience that uh, they just couldn't get past it. And uh, so when he started talking about that, they just went psycho and crazy and uh, they arrested him, the Romans, and uh, were re- ready to give him a hard time when Paul said, hey, you can't mess with me, I'm a Roman citizen. And once they found that out, they went, whoa, he's a citizen, let's take care of him. And uh, we pick it up at uh, chapter 23, verse 1, uh, where we kind of left off last, the last time. We'll, we'll kind of rehearse it a little bit more here. But um, it says, Paul, standing before the Sanhedrin, looks straight at them and says, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near him to strike him on the mouth, upside the head, which really ticked off Paul because that was wrong. You don't just hit somebody like that. There were rules, there were were procedures, and Paul was highly educated. He was as educated as these guys were more. I mean, he was way up on the totem pole and all of this. He was one of their own who had uh, become a a Christian and, and was now preaching the gospel. And when they did that, Paul got angry 
And he says, Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. He knew the law. He knew his rights. He knew what was going on. They violated the law of Moses in that situation. And he told them off. God's going to smack you someday, you big fat stinking jerk. Well, interesting thing about that. Because a lot of times, number one, we get this picture that Christians are these meek, mild, girly man guys. That no matter what anybody says, they should just take it. But when you look at Paul, you don't see that. He's not this girly guy. He, he definitely suffered for the cause of Christ. He knew what it was to be humble. He took his lumps when he had to. But he wasn't just a target for people to beat up on and never standing up for himself. And, and he did in this situation. But what's really interesting is the next verse. It says, those who were standing near Paul said, man, you dare insult God's high priest. And then Paul immediately backs off. He says, brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest. For it is written, then he quotes from uh, Exodus Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. The minute he realized that this guy was the spiritual leader of the the group, he immediately apologized. Now that is absolutely fascinating. Because the guy was wrong. Paul was right. The guy was wrong. But Paul repented for getting in the guy's face once he found out who he was because he knows this attitude of respecting spiritual authority. And we started talking about this uh, last time we were together. And I I said that we would get together this time and I would tell you the story of David. But then I went ahead and told it to you anyway. So uh, we won't go ahead and go through all that now. But uh, just rehearsing the story of David, how David... Um, came along and came to Saul. This is when they were having the big battle with Goliath and the Philistines. And Saul believed in David. Saul was the guy who gave David his shot. Without Saul, David may have never gotten the opportunity to do what he did. But Saul saw something in David, trusted David, gave David his opportunity. David goes out there, kills Goliath, all of a sudden he starts uh, having all the success, he's succeeding everywhere he goes, and then at some point Saul goes a little crazy in the head and he starts getting jealous of David and starts giving David a hard time, so on the one hand Saul is the one who gives David his shot in life but then Saul tries to start, start, starts to try to kill him the Bible talks about how David would start to play the harp and, and Saul would throw a javelin at him, trying to pin him to the wall. And David dodged out of the way. And then he says the next time, same thing happened. And he threw it. I got to tell you, you start throwing javelins at me. There is no next time. I don't know what David was thinking. But he actually stuck around for the next shot. And again, he tried to kill him and David had to dodge. Eventually, David was running for his life. And a lot of what you read in the Psalms of, of David crying out to God, help me, be with me in my time of trouble, watch over me, protect me from my enemies. He's talking about Saul. Saul who was tormenting him and challenging him and chasing him and making his life a living hell. And then what's really fascinating is when you read how David had at times opportunities to kill Saul, but refused to do it. His men thought he was crazy. He says, David, let me kill him. I'll kill him. And David would say, how dare you? How could you dare raise your hand against the Lord's anointed? I'd be thinking, Lord's anointed? The guy's a jerk. He's God, God has rejected him as king. Da, da, da. But it didn't matter. David continued to show great respect to Saul. Up until the time he died. And then when David found out who killed him when he died, he killed that guy. I mean, it was 
unbelievable the degree of respect David held to this guy who made his life hell. Now this is an ad. Now honestly, when you read that whole story, and we'll do it sometime, maybe when we get in, into some of the Old Testament, so we, we won't call, do it in great detail now, but man, when you read that, it's, it's more than you can even comprehend. Honestly, I don't get it. I don't see how David continued to show great reverence and respect to Saul, who was a slime bag by anyone's measurement, but yet he continued to show respect. And we see a reflection of that in Paul here, where he shows respect to this man who just publicly did something that was clearly wrong. Respect. Respect. Oh my gosh, I mean, we're so far from that today, it is pathetic. I mean, this idea of showing respect to spiritual leaders, to pastors and churches today, that is so far from, from most churches, it's sad. Most churches, they immediately assume the pastor's a slime bag. I mean, the, the premise is, watch out. Watch out what he's going to do. Watch out what he's going to do. And they, they structure the church organization, so they watch out for the pastor. And you've got the board, so you can watch out for the pastor. And you have the oversight committee to watch out for the pastor. And you got all these checks and balances to watch out for the pastor. And boy, the minute the guy so much as sneezes wrong, they jump on him. And it's common that people criticize and talk nasty about their pastors. They go to lunch and they have chicken and bratwurst and whatever. And the pastor, pastor's part of lunch. And they chew on him for a while. You know, I don't know if I appreciate what he said, what he did. This is American Christianity today. It is abomination. It's an abomination the way people treat their spiritual leaders with such unbelievable disrespect. I'm not talking about me here. I, I feel I get a lot of respect from, from the people in my church. But this is rampant throughout Christianity today. Oh, we got a couple of wackos every once in a while who, who come at me in just a disrespectful form. But, you know, it is what it is. It's unbelievable. There's no sense of this. People more say, well, I don't care who he is. I'm going to fight for what's right. That's not what Paul did. Now, obviously, there's lines that get crossed. I mean, your pastor starts committing adultery and stealing and lying, stealing and turns into an axe murder. You know, you got to deal with it. But even then, I think people should do, do with it in a way that deal with it in a way that's respectful and a deference to the pastor and, and, and a, a do whatever you got to do to straighten out the situation. But goodness gracious, today people are just, they immediately show disrespect and criticisms and throw rah, 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 all the time. So far... Are they from God's heart? Because God's heart, David was a man after God's heart, treated with such great respect, the one who was giving him such a hard time. Uh, Paul treated this man with great respect, who did not earn it, who in fact uh, deserved to be spoken of evilly because of what he was doing. But immediately Paul bowed respectfully, apologized. Paul was the one who apologized. Because he knew who the guy was. This is the attitude of respect to those who God raises up as leaders among them. Again, it doesn't give them a blank check to be bad. But it never gives you, no matter what they do, to be a blank check to be disrespectful. Because these are men and women of God that God has called, who have put in places of leadership and stuff. And the attitude among people of faith should be to show great respect, deference to those to whom God has placed uh, in these spiritual positions. And uh, man, I, you know, I wish I could had more time to speak on this, but this is, this is really a big deal, you know. Um, and it's hard. I mean, I, I, again, I read David and I, I can't even relate to how 
far. He went out of the way to show respect to Saul. I mean, it's bizarre. But, uh, you know, we've all had people in our lives that have challenged this in us. Sometimes some of you guys have been in churches where the pastor did turn out to be a slime bag or, uh, you know, or, you know, guys who you respected all of a sudden turn on you. Man, I've, I got them in my life. I have my own personal Saul, you know, the one who gave me my opportunity to preach and teach and do what I do today. You know, suddenly it just seems to be on the warpath trying to come after me and throw javelins at me. What do you do? You do what David did. You defend yourself. You move. You run with your army if you have to to get out of the way. But you don't strike back. And that's always a challenge. Even though you're being treated horribly or or in a lousy way, you still have to treat with respect. Hard concept for people to get. And boy, if we can get to that place where we just always will honor and respect those and treat with deference those whom God has anointed and whom God has used. Again, we're not talking blank check to do what's wrong. We're talking respect and honor to those. Even when they do mess up, you still cover it with respect. Um, which is exact. Everybody in the room knew what Ananias did was wrong because they all knew the law. But nobody said a thing, and Paul immediately backed off. Uh, again, that, we could do a three-hour study just on uh, spiritual authority and respect like that, but I think you get the point. Okay, moving on. Well, so here right away he backs off and, he, you know, he just rebuked the, 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 uh, the high priest in front of everybody. He, he, he apologizes. And then Paul, Paul is brilliant. This guy is an extremely intelligent man. He's in this situation and he looks around the room and it dawns on him. I believe by the Holy Spirit because Jesus said, don't, don't think about what you're going to say until you get there. The Holy Spirit will make these things clear to you in, in times of trouble like this. And uh, Paul's sitting there and all of a sudden... It dawns on him that we've got Sadducees here and Pharisees here. Well, he brilliantly pulls this move, which you'll read in just a second, where he gets the two sides fighting with each other instead of coming after him. Because the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't really like each other. Um, They were all part of the deal, but the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They think once you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. There is no resurrection. And they didn't believe in angels and spirits and all that kind of stuff. Well, the Pharisees did. I mean, they were also squirrels and too religious and more worried about religiosity than than righteousness. But they believed in the resurrection, and they believed in angels and spirits and all this kind of thing. So check this out, verse 6. So then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And he was. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Brilliant, brilliant. I believe this came to him by the Holy Spirit. That's not why he was on trial. It wasn't because of the resurrection of the dead. Remember, they didn't have a problem. When he, Paul, Paul talked about Jesus and the resurrection, they didn't have a problem with that. It was just the Gentile thing. But he got them, he kind of goaded them. He said, I'm I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead. Well, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Well, there was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued 
vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. (laughs) Now remember, they came there to try and kill him. So much was their animosity towards each other. These people, you know, we read the book of Acts how they would just get into riots and screaming and hollering about stuff. We read about the one place where these people chanted for what was it, three hours, you know, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, the, uh, uh, when he was in Ephesus and, and, and they were concerned about the idols and three hours chanting, screaming. Oh, these people were prone to emotional outbursts like you cannot believe. Very much part of their culture. Uh, and it's the Middle East. And you still see that today. You'll see where, uh, you know, these imams or something over there, uh, whatever, will get these people in a lather and they'll be chanting and running in the streets and you think, man, you know, most Americans, you can't get them to come out of their house. Yet these guys get tens of thousands chanting, Duke to America, you know, whatever it is. Why? Because by nature of their culture and the way they respond to stuff, they like to yell and holler and scream and get into these big emotional outbursts. And it was 2,000 years ago, still to this day. So anyway, these guys came there to kill Paul. But after Paul brilliantly got a fighting with each other, the Pharisees started standing up for, for Paul. He says, we find nothing wrong with him. What what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Well, they didn't care about Paul. They were just sticking it to the Sadducees. What about a spirit or an angel? And of course, they got mad. We don't believe in spirits and angels. Well, that's why maybe a spirit talked to him. I find nothing wrong with him. And off to the races they went. Well, this dispute became so violent. Again, think, I mean, it's so hard for us from Western culture, you know, but the only thing we get excited about is, you know, uh, you know, football team games or something like that. But these people, they would get so rattled and in such a, an uproar over things that it became violent. These guys came to try Paul, but they were at each other's throat to the point where it became dangerous. So the dispute became so violent and I presume they were hitting each other and smacking each other upside the head and going for each other's throats. Sounds like some churches I know. But uh, anyway, the commander was so afraid he, he, uh, that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. This is how intense it got. Well, then he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So by force, the troops bust in there trying to calm this whole deal out. So anyway, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Lord knew where he was going. So, you know, here again, again, it's a little confusing why the spirit, Paul said, was leading him to Jerusalem, or or, uh, to go to Jerusalem, and he'd eventually go to Rome, but yet at the same time, the spirit kept warning he would get hurt. Uh... Real interesting stuff. But anyway, so the Lord encourages them. Hey, listen, while you testified, hang in there. You're going to be testifying for me someday in Rome. So anyway, so the next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy. Apparently, they calmed themselves down, quit trying to kill each other, and they were back on the same page again. And they formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Now, that's quite the oath. You know, you make a vow, you swear to God. I will not drink another drop. I will not eat another morsel of food until I kill Paul. So they come after making this big vow. There were more than 40 men that were involved in this. He says more than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders who apparently had calmed down by now and said, we have taken a solemn oath. This is serious. A serious oath. 
that we will not eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. And it was all, it was all a scam. Go tell him that you want more information. You want Paul to come and, uh, and we're, ready to, we're ready to kill him before he gets here. So these guys make this, uh, this big thing and says, you know, go for this and try and get him to come down. Um, a little risky, you'd think. You know, at least wait till you know he's coming and then quit eating. <laughs> but they made this big vow. Um, we're not going to eat anything until he shows up. Uh, so anyway, this is what's going on. But now check this out, verse 16. When the son of Paul's sister, in other words, Paul's nephew, heard about this plot, well, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Well, then Paul called one of the centurions over and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. And the centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. And the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and said, what is it you want to tell me? And he said, well, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow. Obviously, because... They can't eat until he does. Uh, on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. And he warns him. He says, don't give in to them. Because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to their request. Well, the commander dismissed the young man and, and cautioned him. Don't tell anyone uh, that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen it's a whole bunch of guys okay uh 470 guys to go to caesarea at nine tonight provide mounts for paul so that he may be taken safely to the to governor felix and then he wrote this letter claudius lysius to his excellency governor felix greetings this man was seized by the jews and they were about to kill him but i came with my troops and rescued him for i had learned that he is a roman citizen well he's taking a little <laughs> a little liberty there wasn't exactly the order if you remember correctly he came and grabbed him and uh uh stretched him out and were getting, was getting ready to flog him. Uh, and that's when he found out that he was a Roman citizen, which freaked out the centurion because he knew he could get in trouble for that. So he, he kind of turned the events around. A little. I, I heard he was a Roman citizen, so I went to rescue him. Yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he said, I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him. That deserved death and imprisonment. He didn't know what was going on. The one's yelling about angels. The other one doesn't like angels. These people are nuts. He says, when I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers took the the, uh, letter that I just read to you, uh, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him. They figured they... The risk had dropped considerably, uh, but the rest of them stayed while they returned uh, to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived at Caesarea, um, 
I'm sorry, the next day they let the cavalry go on with him. In other words, they sent back all the sold, other soldiers. Uh, and then they returned to the barracks. The, the cavalry arrived at Caesarea and they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province Paul was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. And then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. End of chapter 3. Okay, so this is how he winds up there. Now, I've always wondered what happened to the 40-some guys who swore to God they wouldn't eat or drink, you know, until they killed Paul. My guess is they got really hungry and finally died, uh, or they found some religious way of getting out of the vow. My guess is the latter. I'm sure somehow they they figured out a way to get, you know, un, out from underneath their vow. If they really meant their vow, it would have meant they would have all starved to death and been dead. Well, you can only go out so many days without water, so it wouldn't have been more than a week or so before they were all keeled over. But uh, I have a sneaking suspicion they found some religious excuse to get out of it. But uh, anyway, we don't hear any more about these guys. Um, so anyway, five days later, the high priest Ananias, uh, remember Ananias, he's the high priest. He's the weasel that had, had Paul slapped upside the head and, and uh, Paul rebuked and then apologized. And he was there when Paul got them all strangling each other over angels and whatnot. Uh, so he goes down with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. So he gets before Felix, this uh, ruler, where this all got sent to. And he gets up and he says to Felix, opening line, We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. In other words, he got up and kissed the guys. But that's what they did. They would always get before these guys and... How wonderful you are. In reality, the Jews hated the Romans. They hated them with a passion. I'm sure these reforms, they really felt, were more like torturous things that were shoved down their throats. But you don't do that when you come before the uh, governors and these different people. And he starts out, what a wonderful man you are. And then he goes on. He says, everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, oh no, I guess he's not done kissing butt. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Okay, so, but in order not to weary you any further, I request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Okay, now he's done kissing butt. Now, we have found this man, Paul, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And you'll notice they keep using different words. Um, they were called the way, and they, you'll even see that in a minute, uh, for a long time. I think it was Antioch were the first time they ever used the phrase Christians, which we'll start seeing uh, pop up as well. Um, they uh, referred to as the Nazarene. They didn't really have a name for the. Who are these people? You know, they're the Nazarenes. They're the people of the way. They're Christians. Uh, and it took quite some time before the final phrase, Christians, the word Christian, started being used by everyone. Anyway, so he's a ringleader of this Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. He was there to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. Again, they're lying. He wasn't desecrating the temple. Point of fact, he wasn't doing anything. He was praying quietly, trying to make all the uh, Christian Jews happy 
because he was being very Jewish and, and uh, trying to calm down some of their uh, concerns. Anyway, he says, by examining yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. And the Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul, that is, Paul replied, and then Paul kisses his butt because this is, what, this is what you did in those days. I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation. So I gladly make my defense. You know, you're such a wonderful guy. I just love you. Well, I just love you, you know. Yeah, I'll bet. Anyway, that's the way you started out. He says, anyway, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. That's what he did. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple, which is unusual for Paul, because he usually did that. He went arguing with everybody. He was in people's face, preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. They need to turn from their sins. Yeah, he was a great guy. But when he went to Jerusalem, because the apostles have told him to be, you know, as Jewish as you can, try to make people happy, he was very quiet. So he said, hey, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't arguing with anybody. I wasn't stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. He says, you can check this out for yourself. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that he said, I will admit this, okay, that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, talking about Christians, which they call a sect, this Nazarene sect. He says, I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. He says, I agree with all this stuff, all this Old Testament. I agree with it all. He says, and I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. He says, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem. (laughs) He's kind of downplaying here. His absence of several years was he was preaching the gospel all over the known world and spreading Christianity like crazy all over the place. He just says, well, I was gone for a while. Uh, several years. Then he says, I came back to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. And that's what he was doing. He was there during the purification rite and all the Jewish traditions and stuff. He says, there was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province, uh, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they have found me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it is this one thing, I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. So he kind of eggs them on there. He said, that's the only thing they were all yelling about. I didn't start any riots. It wasn't until I said, hey, I'm here because I believe in, in resurrection from the dead. Well, they all went psycho on each other. Well, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, Christians, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the uh, centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his knees. So he basically puts off, Felix just puts it off, he says, look, when when Lysias shows up, then then I'll decide what, what to do with you. Well, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Drusilla. Sounds like an evil lady from a Disney film. Drusilla. Anyway, uh, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. Uh, He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, 
the judgment to come. Felix was afraid. It freaked him out. This, you know, this, this will kind of give you the willies a little bit. If you're without God, you don't know Jesus, and you're listening to someone who can brilliantly argue to you the points of righteousness, that there's a God in heaven, we've all sinned, we all have to announce, or all, we all have to give answer to, uh, to God someday for our sins, uh, that there's going to be a judgment to come, um, that people lack self-control, da-da-da-da-da. Well, when he started talking about the judgment day coming, uh, Felix didn't want to hear anymore, which is pretty typical, I would dare say, today. People don't have too much of a problem with the love of God. Tell us all about the love of God. Everybody likes the love of God stuff. What they don't like is when you say, hey, there's going to be a judgment day coming. If you're not right, we're all going to stand before God. And if your name is not found written in God's book as a person of righteousness, you will go straight to hell. That message not real popular today. We don't like that. We don't want to talk about that. We just want to just say a prayer and don't matter how I live and it'll all be fine. No, there's a judgment day coming and uh, and that's part of this message that we have to share with people. And again, as soon as he got to that, uh, that freaked him out and Felix says, uh, now that's enough. <laughs> that's enough for now. Oh, we've gone, you've gone over the line. I, I don't like this judgment stuff. He says, you may leave. Uh, when I find it convenient, I will send for you. Um, when I find it convenient, keep that in mind, that phrase, when I find it convenient, okay? At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and, and talked with him. So he kept coming back, uh, asking for Paul, hoping that Paul would give him some money so that he could justify letting him go. So he, he knew he shouldn't be hanging on to him. He liked Paul. He liked what he had to say. But... Uh, you know, he just couldn't go there with him. And uh, Paul obviously never offered him a bribe, so he's there. Now, when it's convenient, check this out. When two years had passed. <laughs> so apparently, he never really uh, got around to answering these questions. Felix, after two years, was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So he's still kissing the Jews and saying, okay, yeah, I love you. We'll, we'll keep Paul in prison. Even though he'd become a friend of Paul's and like what Paul had to say. He lacked the courage to do the right thing. Sounds like a typical politician to me. Anyway, now we're at chapter 25. Now, three days after arriving in the province, this new guy Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. This is two years later. They were still going after him. They hated him. They hated him. You would think after two years, people would kind of calm down a bit? No way. They were still prosecuting this against Paul. And they urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem. Well, yeah, why? For they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Now, I assume this is the same guys who wanted to kill him the first time, although I doubt that they had kept up their no-eating thing, or these had been some really skinny guys trying to ambush him at this point. But they still had this bunch of people who wanted to kill Paul, and they're still on this uh, deal. They are probably just ticked that they had to give in on their last vow. Anyway, Festus answered, Well, Paul's being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come up, come with me and press charges against the man there if he's done anything wrong. Well, after spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. 
When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which, again, they could not prove. They just got up and started ranting and raving about all this stuff. They had no proof about any of these accusations. And then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. I have violated no laws against anyone, not against the Jews, not against Rome. Well, then Festus, wanting to do, to do the Jews a favor, remember he'd been hanging with the Jews for a while now, and they're all buddy buddies by now, and wanted to uh, do something nice for them. He said to Paul, he said, well, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Now, I don't think Festus knew that there was this um, uh, plot to kill Paul along the way. That would have made Festus look very bad to his superior. So I'm pretty positive they wouldn't do it. That's why the, the centurion guy before freaked out. Because if under his watch, if Paul had been killed, it would look very badly on him. Um, I don't know if that would have been the same category as they would have had to kill him or stuff. You remember how the, 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 the law was that if you were guarding someone and they got away, they would kill you. Uh, I'm not sure that would have actually been the case of the centurion, but in, in, in a minimum, both of these guys, there's no way they would have wanted any kind of reflection on them that this would have happened because that would have been a loss of control. These guys prided themselves on having great control, okay? They were military men and they were rulers of their domain. So I'm pretty sure Festus had no idea what, these, what the Jews were up to. But we know that the Jews were asking for this so they could try and kill Paul along the way again. This whole plot deal coming up. Well, so anyway, Paul answered this. He says, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. In other words, look, this is, this is Caesar's court. Why are why you sending me back to Jerusalem? I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. Again, Paul was a pretty strong guy and he knew to stand up for himself and he had no problem getting in people's faces. He says, you know, Festus, that I haven't done anything wrong. Very well yourself. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, and he proclaims this to them. If I've done anything deserving death, which is what the Jews wanted from him, he says, I do not refuse to die. I'll die. I'll surrender my life if I've done anything deserving of this. But if these charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. And that was in Festus' face. No one has the right to hand me over to them. Festus! Okay? And then Paul pulls out the big trump card. The yo mama deal at this point. After years now, he's been at least two years waiting around for something to happen. And, and this isn't something I think they did very uh, Casually, certainly it had been years before he even got around to it, but he knew his life was being threatened. He knew this was an injustice. And then he pulls out the big card and he says this, I appeal to Caesar. And after Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And now the words of the Lord that spoke to him when he was first arrested, that he was going to be going to Rome now are going to be coming true. So at this point, he pulls out the card that the Jews did not want him to. <laughs> what would
would be really funny is if these guys had taken another vow not to eat or drink. And this happens to them again, so I don't know. I would love to know what all the details were there. But he appeals to Caesar, and as a Roman citizen, he had this right, and uh, not without peril, but uh, he pulled the card out, and he appeals to Caesar. Well, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. You know, these kings and people going around visiting each other and chatting. So Agrippa and Bernice come to visit Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. And he said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. So remember, Felix had him, left him over to Festus. Festus has him now. He's got to send him to Rome. And now he's discussing the case with Agrippa. So he says, there's a man here whom Felix has left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he's uh, faced his accusers and had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. I mean, the way they were talking, he probably figured, you know, he's a murderer, he, he had some plot and killed some soldiers. I mean, who knows what they, uh, the horrible things. He said, instead, what they, what they had were some points of dispute with him about their own religion. And some dead guy named Jesus. I mean, it was all totally confusing to Festus. He, he, he says, these people are nuts. He says, here, I thought it was some big deal, but they're arguing over points of the, their own religion and some dead guy named Jesus, who Paul said was alive, but they said he was dead. And, and anyway, he says, I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem. Of course, he really was giving him pressure, giving into pressure, because the Jews wanted him to go to Jerusalem. But I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appearance, or when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. So he said, I was going to send him to this guy, but they, you know, he appealed to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear uh, this man myself. And he replied, well, tomorrow you will hear him. So, and indeed... He does. He says, the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and, you know, dun, 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 here comes Agrippa and Bernice is hanging out. They're coming in, king and queen. They entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa, all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing, to, nothing definite to write to his majesty, talking about the emperor, about him. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Do you think? Of course it was unreasonable. You know, they were kind of at fits ends with Paul. They didn't know what to do with this case. It was all very, very bizarre. So he says, well, 
he was basically setting up, look, we, we can't really judge this guy because he has appealed to the emperor, to Caesar. So he's going to Caesar and everything. I just don't know what to say. You want to talk to him? You know, let's see if we can talk this through so I know what to say as I send uh, him off to Rome. Okay? So anyway, then that's the end of chapter 25. So we just clicked off here. What? One, two, three chapters. Um, cruising right along. And we'll be going... There's only a few chapters left here. We'll be going through it rather quickly here as we wrap this up because a lot of it, you just, you just read the story. There's no great deep truths here as we're just reading firsthand what had happened to Paul. What we're going to read about next week when we come, and we may actually finish uh, the book of Acts next week, depending on how, how we go. I often get stuck in spots, but we'll see. Um, but we're going to read how Paul makes his appeal uh, describes his case before Agrippa and then how they send him off to Rome and how he sails for Rome and Luke, the writer of, of uh, Acts, gives a, just a really detailed account of this incredible storm that uh, Paul was involved in and all of them and how he eventually winds up in Rome and kind of leaves uh, the end of the book of Acts from there. So uh, almost to the end, but uh, very fascinating stuff. I think all of this is vitally important for us as believers to know uh, where we come from in terms of the history of the church, uh, why we believe what we believe, why we worship the way we worship, why we do what we do, uh, the, the historical context that helps us to understand these epistles that Paul wrote to the church, you know, to the Ephesians and to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians and all that stuff, all of it has a historical basis that we're reading here in the book of Acts. Almost done. Anyway, God bless you guys. We look forward to seeing you uh, next week. Have a great week.